All right. Anybody excited about the Beauty and the Beast live action remake? Oh, some of you guys are. Amber is super stoked about this. She's been talking about it for months. Excited is not exactly the word I would use about the whole thing. I mean, you can imagine as a 37-year-old man or almost 37-year-old man with no kids, uh, I never really got into the whole Disney princess thing, you know? I mean, I can appreciate them for what they are, I suppose, but I don't get really worked up over it. Some of you guys really do. Amber is one of those people. There was a time when we lived in Florida that we had uh, after four season passes to Disney, okay? Those are the only types of season passes to Disney we could afford forward. We had to go after four o'clock and the park closed at 10. So we got a few hours anyway. And uh, one night Amber says, hey, I want to go to Epcot and uh, let's invite some of our friends. And we said, okay, let's do it. So we invited several of our friends. And what ended up happening was that the husbands were able to come, but the wives and girlfriends weren't able to make it. So it was Amber, me, my best friend who was my age, and then my other best friend who was 20 years older than me, okay? So it was three guys and Amber. She said, I've got this whole dinner booked. It's going to be great. We're going to go out and have a great meal together. We'll ride some rides. It'll be a blast. What she didn't tell us was that the dinner she booked was at one of the like castle restaurants inside of Disney, and that it was the Disney princess buffet dinner. And so me... My buddy who was my age and a guy who's old enough to be our dad are sitting inside of this medieval themed castle and throughout the dinner, Belle and Snow White and Cinderella and all the new princesses that I don't know, they're walking up to us and they're saying, hello, my prince. There's waltz music playing in the background and they're like, would you care to join me for a dance? No. Lady, it takes an act of parliament to get me to dance with my own wife. She would scratch your face if I joined you for a dance right now. Okay, that's all right. Would you care for a picture? No. To which Amber says, oh, yes, he would. And so she made me, my buddy, and the guy who's old enough to be our dad, stand up and take pictures with every single Disney princess that night. I almost put some of those pictures on the screen, but I knew that Amber was going to post them later this week on Facebook just to embarrass me anyway. And so I figured I'd let her do the dirty work. You can look out for those. They're thoroughly embarrassing. All right. We're not going to talk so much about Disney princesses this morning. We're going to talk about a Jewish queen. We're going to talk about somebody who is going to bear some similarities to some of the the Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast type stories that we've known for so long. The difference is this is not a fictional story. This is an actual historical event. And it didn't happen in the last hundred or few hundred years, but it actually happened nearly 3,000 years ago. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, what do I care about some Jewish princess that lived on the other side of the planet so many millennia ago? I've got good news for you. I think that this particular message, hearing about this particular story from the Bible, is going to open your eyes to the scripture in a way that you never thought possible. Because her story turns out to be more like your life than any other section of the Bible. 
You're like, Dan, come on, man. I'm an engineer in Calgary in the 21st century. What in the world can I have in common with the story of a princess, a Jewish queen who lived 3,000 years ago in the Middle East? Well, let me tell you. Uh, we're going to dive into the scripture here in the book of Esther. Okay, It's in the Old Testament. And as we continue through this character series, I'm going to tell you, we're going to do this morning what we've been doing for the last several weeks. We are going to be jogging through a very wonderful, complex, and deep story. I'm not going to be able to read every one of these verses. Some of you guys are like, oh, thank the Lord. But we're going to hit the highlights through this. And I want to encourage you throughout the week, if you're kind of stoked by this story, if you're reading through it and you're like, well, this is pretty interesting, I'm going to encourage you to go back and read it yourself throughout the week because I promise you will be blessed by hearing the rest of the story. So we're going to start in Esther chapter number one. You guys can follow along in a Bible uh, if you have one, but we've got the verses here on the screen. We're going to get started here in verse number one. The scripture says, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. All right, this happened in the ancient empire of the Medes and the Persians. Maybe you remember them from your history classes in school. They were kind of like the big deal before the Greeks and then the Romans. It was the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans who owned the ancient world. So this story takes place in ancient Iran, okay? It happens in Iran about 460-something B.C. The scripture says, at that time, King Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. That's the city. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted for 180 days. The Bible says it was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. Translation, it was a rager. When it was all over... The king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. They'd been serving all of these nobles for six months. And he's like, look, you guys, you deserve a break. You deserve to be celebrated. And so he's throwing a banquet for all the servants. It says that it lasted for seven days and it was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Skip down to verse number seven. The scripture says, drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs. And there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity by edict of the king. No limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. In ancient times, the king actually would dictate how much people could drink at a party because he didn't want it getting out of hand and embarrassing him. Then in verse number nine, we're introduced to another character. The scripture says, at the same time, Queen Vashti, she's the queen married to King Xerxes, she gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. The women were not allowed the men's party. It was separate. Yeah, I know that's not fair. That's the ancient world. That's how it was, okay? On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, translation, it was a rager. When he was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, and then the Bible names them, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. 
This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. You see, in the Medo-Persian Empire, the, the queen was actually never allowed to be seen by common people. She was reserved solely for the king. And so for the king to get drunk and invite his wife to be paraded in front of all the common folk was a horrible breach of decorum. It was very disgraceful to the queen. Some commentators believe that what he was actually asking was for her to come out with nothing but the crown on. That he actually wanted her paraded in all of her glory in front of everybody. And when she heard the request, she said, nah, buddy, ain't gonna happen. The king burned with anger, the scripture says. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors. I don't know if these guys turn out to be so wise. Who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. Now skip down to verse 15. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through the eunuchs? Uh, Memekin, one of the guys, answered the king and his nobles and said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and they will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it pleased the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians of Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of Xerxes, and the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense. So he followed Mebikin's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Now, before we riot, okay, because some of you ladies are like, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. All right, before we riot, there's something you need to understand when you read the Bible. You need to understand this in order to put the Bible in its proper context, in order to make sense out of it, and in order to keep the Bible from saying something that it doesn't. In the scripture, there are things that are called prescriptive commands, and there are things that are called descriptive commands. If you go to the doctor and you get a prescription, he writes you something that you should take, medicine or some sort of treatment that you should go through. It is in order, okay? A descriptive command is simply explaining what was said or done. It's not that the Bible is authorizing descriptive uh, descriptions. That was lame. I'll try to come up with something better next time. It's not that the Bible was like putting a stamp of approval on what these people were doing. It was simply saying, this is how they thought in the ancient world. So if you're like, that is horribly misogynistic. It's sexist. I can't believe that people thought that way. Me either. I'm glad that we don't generally anymore. The Bible is not saying that you as a husband should think this way. The Bible is not saying that you as a wife should treat your husband in this way. It's a descriptive command, not a prescriptive command. Keep that in mind and it'll save you a lot of trouble as you're reading through the Bible. Chapter two. After Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. Translation, he regretted it. He wanted a queen. 
So his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king. So he put the plan into effect. At that time, the scripture says there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai is going to be important in this story, okay? So we've got four people so far. We've got Xerxes, Vashti, who was deposed, and now we have Mordecai, the son of Jer. The Bible says that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. That is, he was Jewish, and he was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so we've talked a little bit about people throughout Scripture, right? We talked about Adam and Eve, then we talked about Samson, then we talked about David. And after the David story that we read, there comes a time where the Babylonians invade Israel. They take everybody captive. There's no champion that rises up and gives victory to the Israelites, like we've talked about over the last few weeks. So they are taken as foreign prisoners into Babylon. Babylon goes on for several hundred years, and then the Medes and the Persians take over Babylon, right? And so the Jews are still stuck. They have a totally different ruler than the one who enslaved them originally, and that is how Mordecai got into Iran. His family was taken prisoner several decades before. The scripture says this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah who was also called Esther. All right, there she is. That's the, 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 the main character, the hero of the story that we're going to be talking about. He had a beautiful uh, cousin uh, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Now, as a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther, and he treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the place, the best place of the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality. She hadn't told anybody that she was a Jew living in a Persian land. She hadn't told anybody her family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Uh, he kind of thought, you know, if you tell everybody you're Jewish, the king might decide he doesn't want to take a foreign wife. So every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, listen to this, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take. And that evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms. And the next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Man, can you imagine that? You are forced to leave behind your family, forced to give up your dreams so that you could go and essentially become a servant, a slave of the king. Sure, that's got its privileges, but understand you have to go through 12 months of preparation before you're even ready to face the king. Then your entire future is dependent on how well you please a man that you've never met. 
somebody you don't love, somebody you don't care for, and who honestly probably doesn't care anything for you. If you don't do a quote-unquote good job, he'll send you to his harem, and there you will live out your life as a maid for the rest of your days. You will never become a mother. You'll never become a wife. You will never have a, a, a job or any sort of career. You'll never accomplish anything. If you're a little bit better and the king kind of liked you, then you would still do all of that. But every once in a while, he would call you in. You'd sleep with the king, spend the night with him, and you know, you'd enjoy one night of good things at least. Or if you did really great, man, it just feels weird even talking like this. If you, if you did really great, then the king would say, oh, you've pleased me so much, I want to make you my queen. That's what every one of these girls are facing. That's what Esther is staring at in this story. The scripture says, uh, again, here in verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, and, uh, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai uh, had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the, king, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except for what he suggested. Obviously, he's going to know what King Xerxes liked. Okay? He, uh, she asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter in the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head, and he declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a royal banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, and Mordecai had become a palace, a palace official, so he had been promoted. Uh, cousin Mordecai had gotten a job in the palace as well. Even after all of that, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's direction, just as she did when she lived in his home. All right, we've read a lot of verses, and there's still a lot of story to go. So we're going to jump over a few things. I'm going to give you the highlights. Again, go back and read this on your own. I'm telling you, it is amazing, the stuff that's here in the Bible. So what happens next is, is uh, Mordecai is working his job at the palace one day, and he overhears some guys like whispering in a corner. And he listens into what they're saying, and he realizes that they are plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. And he's like, oh, no, we can't let that stand. So he goes to the palace officials, and he tells them, hey, look, these two dudes over here, they're talking about killing the king. You guys might want to do something about that. And so the Bible says they conduct an investigation. They find out that the charges or the accusations were true, and both of these men are killed before they can assassinate the king. That's going to be an important plot point later on. After that happens, the last character in our story comes along. It's a dude named Haman, okay? Haman is the villain in our story. He's the bad guy. And I don't want you to think in terms of a Disney villain. I don't want you to think about a guy who's, you know, he's kind of bad, but not really bad. And if he just got the right kind of love, then he would turn into a good guy. No, he's a bad guy all the way through and through. He's not a fictional bad guy. The threats, the actions that he takes, these are not like, oh, that's cute. It's a cartoon. You know, we know everything's going to work out okay. That's not at all what's going on here. He actually decides 
that he doesn't like Jewish people at all. He says these foreigners who are living inside of our land, they're causing bad things to happen. He's got special beef with Mordecai because he's the high palace official. And when he walks by, everybody's supposed to bow down and give him reverence. And Mordecai's like, no, you're a jerk, man. I'm not going to bow down and give you any reverence. And so Haman, the bad guy, the villain in this story, he decides, all right, the only way that our nation is going to get any better is if we drive out these foreigners, and in particular, I do something about that meddling Mordecai. So he goes to the king, and he says, hey, king, I want you to know, I, I wouldn't bother you about this normally, but, you know, it's gotten kind of bad. There is a group of people that live here in Persia, and they are totally disobeying everything you say. In fact, they're trying to foment a revolution. They're trying to fight. They're trying to be free. And you know, I think it would be best if we just dealt with them now instead of letting this get out of hand. So here's what I'm going to suggest, King Xerxes. Haman says, I'm going to suggest that you write a law that says on March the 7th of next year that we exterminate all of the Jewish people inside of the Persian Empire. Now, I told you this is a bad guy. He was like the original Hitler, no lie, okay? He says, I want to exterminate all of the Jewish people on March 7th, because if we don't, you're going to lose your empire. Now, the king doesn't know that his queen is Jewish, and he doesn't know that his, uh, he was saved by a Jewish man. But he thinks, this is my high palace official. He's second in command. I trust him. I'm going to let him do what he says. And so they make a decree, March 7th, every single Jew is going to be put to death. Now, Mordecai hears what's going on, and he starts trying to get word to Esther. Esther, we got to do something. you you got to speak up. You're the queen. Maybe you can get an audience with the king and tell him what's going on and get him to change his mind. But he's having trouble getting to her because, remember, the queen was not allowed to be seen by common people. So they start sending go-betweens. You know, the eunuch who's in charge of all of the harem, he starts going back and forth to Mordecai. And so in chapter number 4, verse 7, Mordecai told the eunuch the whole story, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. That was the deal that kind of finally sealed it. He said, King, if you pass this and we get rid of these Jews, I'll give you 10,000 pieces of silver from my personal bank account to the empire as a way of showing gratitude. So Haman, uh, rather, I'm sorry, Mordecai tells the attendant all of these things. Mordecai gave Hathak, that's the uh, eunuch attendant, a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and to plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay the message to Mordecai. Look, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. She's like, guys, I I really don't want to go in there because I'll probably die before I get to tell him the message. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai, verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will go and do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, 
I must die. So Mordecai went away, and he did everything that Esther had ordered him. A couple more verses, and then we'll move on. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. Now, I want you to understand the drama that's going on here. She is the queen, but she cannot go to the king unless she is summoned. There is the very real, not just possibility, but likelihood that the moment she steps in front of the king, she's going to be put to death. This is already a king who has deposed and exiled his former wife when she didn't follow the rules. And so Esther is taking a huge risk. She is putting her life on the line to even walk in and begin to have a conversation with the king. When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her. And he held out his gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. She made it. Luckily, she wasn't killed, but it ain't done yet. The king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is up to half of the kingdom. Now, I think he's being a little facetious here. They probably had a pretty solid prenup. He wasn't actually going to give her half the kingdom. He's just being nice, all right? But he's like, I'll give you whatever you want. Esther replied, if it please the king, let the king and Haman, the bad guy, the villain, the one who's trying to kill Esther and all of her people. She said, why don't you two come today to a banquet that I have prepared for the king? The king turned to his attendants and said, okay, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. While they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Esther replied, not, hey, Haman's a bad dude. He's trying to kill all the Jews. You should stop him. Nope. She says, this is my request and my deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king and it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to another banquet that I will prepare for you, and then I will explain what all this is about. Esther chickens out. That's what it comes down to. She had her opportunity. She had the chance. She got scared, and she decided not to ask. I'll do it tomorrow. Let's do this after I sleep on it another time. Chapter 7, verse 1, so the king and Haman went the next day to Queen Esther's banquet. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had been merely sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be true, too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you, my queen? Esther replied, this wicked Haman, sitting here at the table, eating your dinner, eyeballing me. He's the one. This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage, and he went out into the palace garden. He couldn't even stand to be around Haman. Haman, however, made a grave mistake. He stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. Doesn't look good for Haman. 
The king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then one of the king's eunuchs said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Esther goes on to tell the king about the plot about who it is that he had ordered the destruction of. And the king is like, well, Esther, I'm not totally sure we could reverse this law in time. We're getting close to the date where the annihilation is supposed to happen. And so he says, I, I don't know, maybe like, I just, maybe we can't do anything. And she says, I've got an idea. Make a new law. So you, you can't repeal the old law and get it out to all the provinces in time. Make a, a new law that says Jews are allowed to defend themselves with whatever means necessary. And the king, the kingdom, will not penalize the Jews if they are fighting for their own lives. And so the king says, great, he makes a law, and all of the Jews are saved. All of the enemies, Haman's people, who were going to destroy the Jews, are wiped out before they can accomplish their plan. Now, that's the story of Esther in a nutshell. It's a big one. It's a long one. And the tendency is going to be for you to sit in your seat and to listen to that story and to say, oh, I identify with Queen Esther. She's the obvious hero in this story, right? She's the one that I'm supposed to be like, man, I see myself in her so much. I see myself as somebody who, you know, goes along with the flow. Sometimes I do the right thing, I do the wrong thing rather. I put up with things that I shouldn't. I'm silent when I should speak up, you know. We could preach a whole sermon. You've probably been through Bible studies going through the book of Esther. And, and, and the message behind it all is like, you've got to have courage to stand up at the right time, right? Who knows if God hasn't brought you to this point in your life for such a moment as this. And as we said last week in our story about David, that is not a bad way to read this passage. It's not wrong to read the passage this way. But I'll tell you, it is a little bit superficial to read the passage this way. Because as we've been telling you throughout this whole series, the Bible is ultimately the story of God trying to redeem and reconcile the world through Jesus. I could put it a little bit differently. The Bible exists to tell his story, not my story. You see, one of the worst ways that you can read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, is to look at the heroes, to look at the people who accomplished big things and to say, that's me, I'm Queen Esther, I'm David, I'm these heroes, it's all about me. But if you read the Bible that way, you will end up with a very shallow, superficial, and even self-centered faith because you're making these stories all about you. But remember, the Bible doesn't exist to tell your story. It exists to tell his story, the big story. All these little heroes point towards Jesus. Even Queen Esther points towards Jesus. Think about it like this. Esther was dragged into all of this. She was forced into it against her will. But Jesus chose his path willingly. Nobody made him do it. He chose to offer himself for us. Esther had to be made beautiful before she could accomplish her plan. When you read the Bible, you find out that Jesus had to be made very ugly in order to accomplish his plan. He was beaten, tortured, and killed, not given 12 months of beauty treatments. Esther 
was willing to die. Jesus did die. Esther saved her people, the Jews. But Jesus saves every single person, regardless of their race, regardless of their language, regardless of their background, regardless of where they come from spiritually. Jesus has the power and the grace to save everyone. So here's the thing. The story of Esther should point you towards the bigger story, the story of Jesus. But in our last, I don't know, five, seven minutes of this message, I don't even want to talk about Esther. I don't want to talk about Haman. I don't want to talk about Xerxes. I don't want to talk about Queen Vashti. I want to talk a little bit about God. You say, well, that sounds obvious, right? Doesn't every sermon ultimately talk about God? Yeah, I hope so. Doesn't every book of the Bible ultimately talk or direct us back towards God? Doesn't every single part of the scripture talk about God? And the answer to that question is no. You see, one of the most interesting facts about the book of Esther is that if you start in chapter one, verse one, and you read all the way through to the end, God is never mentioned in the book. It's the only place in the Bible where God is not acting, speaking, performing miracles, working in people's lives. It's the only scripture in the Bible where people, the characters aren't talking about God. He's not mentioned in their words or their thoughts. And I think that's on purpose because as you read through the book of Esther, you're supposed to ask yourself a question. Where is God in all of this? This is a big moment. The Jews are on the brink of being annihilated and it's like God is somehow absent in this story. The question you're supposed to ask is, where is God? And I'm telling you guys, God, although he is not mentioned or acknowledged in this story, is actually the main character. God is the main character of this story in which he is not even acknowledged. All of these things that happen are not a string of coincidences. It wasn't just a coincidence that the king got drunk and got into a fight with his wife. It wasn't just a coincidence that Esther was born beautiful or that she was born into a Jewish family. It wasn't just a coincidence that she was chosen by the king. It wasn't just a coincidence that Mordecai happened to overhear the plot of assassination. It wasn't just a coincidence that the queen was able to get an audience with the king. And it wasn't just a coincidence that Haman happened to get busted with Queen Mordecai when the, uh, with Queen Esther when uh, the, the, the king walked in. None of these things are coincidences. They are God at work. They are God moving even when he's not acknowledged. God is the main character in a story of which he's not even mentioned. I think it's possible that you've never mentioned God in your life. You've never acknowledged him. You've never thought about him. And I'm telling you what is true of Esther is true of you. He has been the main character in your story this whole time. The only time you may have ever said the word God is when you're asking him to damn something. That may be the limit of your use of that word. But I'm telling you, it is not a coincidence that you were born into the family that you were born into. That was God's sovereign hand. You just didn't recognize him at the time. It's not a coincidence that you didn't get into that school, but you got into this school. That was God directing you to the place that he wants you to be. It's not a coincidence that you said no to all those other guys and you said yes to this one and now you've got a beautiful family. It's not a coincidence that you got laid off. It is not a coincidence 
None of it. Because God is at work even when it's not obvious or acknowledged. God is at work in your life even when you don't know exactly what he's up to. The entire point, the whole thing the book of Esther is trying to communicate to you and I is that God is always at work in your life. You never have the right to look around at your circumstances and say, God, where are you? You may not see him, but he's there. His hiddenness does not indicate his distance. And his silence does not indicate his absence. You don't see him, but I promise you he is at work. Give it some time. Gain some perspective. And you will look back and you will see, wow, he has been there. And now I see how he's been working these things out. One more thought, short one, I promise. One more thing I love about this passage is that it reminds us that God works both in the miraculous and in the mundane. Hey, we come to the Bible and we like to focus on the big miracles that God does. The times where he just blows the hinges off the door and we are totally in awe, you know? There's a global flood. There's an angelic messenger. There's a pillar of fire. There's a resurrected rabbi. And we think that's the way God works. If he's gonna do something in my life, it's gotta be in this big, miraculous, unbelievable way that nobody ever expected. But the message of the book of Esther is that God works in both the miraculous and the mundane. You read the story of Esther and you see King Xerxes getting drunk and you don't think, well, there's God at work. But that's exactly what's going on. God is at work in that mundane action. He's at work in every little decision, in every victory, in every defeat in your life. God is at work, both in the miraculous and the mundane. Let me tell you how this plays out. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Lots of people are. You're not alone in that. But maybe your marriage is struggling and you're saying, God, I need you to do a miracle. I need you to come in in some big way. Pour out your spirit. We've got to get this ship righted. I need you to restore my love and my butterflies and all my feelings for my husband. And then maybe you, you get uh, an ad for a marriage conference that's coming up. And you're like, we're going to go to this weekend thing and this is going to be it. God's going to do a miracle. And maybe he will. Maybe he'll restore you. Maybe he'll give you back everything that you've lost. Maybe he'll move in the miraculous, but it's also possible. And I would argue it's more likely that God is going to move in the mundane before he moves in the miraculous. So God is just as likely to restore your relationship because you get up in the morning and choose to make the bed because you know that's what your wife wants, even though you think it's a total waste of time. Nobody ever goes in our bedroom. Why do I need to make it? Because she wants you to. God is willing to work, I believe, in, in the fact that you'll lean over and give a kiss to your spouse despite the fact that you don't feel particularly close and romantic today. That little action is something that God can use to accomplish what you're seeking. Maybe it's the willingness to not respond with sarcasm when they annoy you. You, you just want to let loose with that comment, but you decide, you know what, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to say something kind instead, even though it's not the, the easy thing or the thing that I'd like to say in this moment. I believe that God can work in those mundane choices just as much as the miraculous. And I don't believe that you and I have any right to ask God to move in the miraculous if we're not willing to let him move in the mundane as well.
You might have a coworker who cheated their way to the top. You may be so mad at them because you got passed over for the promotion for that person and you know everything they do, everything they did in order to get that promotion. And you might even be tempted to think to yourself that you need to be dishonest. You need to lie, cheat, and steal in order to get ahead. That's the way the world works. Can I encourage you not to give in to that temptation? To instead say, I'm going to focus on the little things. I'm going to show up to work on time. I'm going to treat people well. I'm going to take care of my responsibilities and trust that even when you don't see God at work, he is working through your choices on the daily basis. Oh, guys, the point of Esther, the thing that we're supposed to walk away from is, is the question, where is God? And the, the answer is he's there all along. It's not coincidence. He is working out his will in her life. And I guarantee you, he is working out his will in your life as well. Stay plugged in. Stay faithful. Keep moving. One of the best things you can do is give God a long obedience in the same direction. Just keep going and trust that he will work and move in your life.